Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. 53 times more powerful than the original Captain Morgan, 200 times more powerful than Blackbeard, and 80,000 times more powerful than Jack Sparrow, this Chinese pirate queen made waves during Qing Dynasty China but left little of herself behind for history to discover. The end. Let's talk about Ching Shi. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1807, although cruder methods had been in use since 500 BC, what we think of as gas streetlights were first used in London. In Philadelphia, a pharmacist sold the first fruit-flavored carbonated beverages, only they weren't soda, they were health drink. Robert Fulton designed the first successful steamboat, and it began making runs up and down the Hudson River in New York. Napoleon Bonaparte and his wars were in full swing in Europe. Thomas Jefferson was in his second term as president of the United States, and King George III was barely hanging on to reality, but still ruling Great Britain. Both U.S. Congress and U.K. Parliament took legal steps to end the slave trade. Robert E. Lee and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow were born. Martin and Hannah Van Buren were married. And in 1807, Chinese pirate leader Cheng Yi died, and his wife, Cheng Shi, stepped into the management void to become known as the most successful pirate the world has ever known. A quick note for those of you listening with or around small children, this show, while not exactly graphic in nature or even full of curse words, nevertheless includes some adult themes. So we strongly advise listening to it yourself first before involving the younger ears. Okay? So now... On with the show. Well over 200 years ago, possibly in 1775, in Wangdong province of China, on the very southeast coast, a little girl was born. And though she's the subject of our show, we are going to be straight with you and tell you that no one is even very clear what her actual birth name was. Maybe Shi Yang seems to be the only consensus. <laughs> Sometimes you'll see Shi Yu which isn't spelled anything like it sounds. <laughs> we will explain the meaning of her name later. We might just go for clarity purposes with Cheng Shi, since there seems to be no real consensus on what her birth name was. Is that cool with you, Susan? Yeah, Cheng Shi is very good. Speculation is rife also about her early childhood. Did her parents die, leaving her to be a wily street urchin like the artful dodger from Oliver Twist? Did her family have too many children and not enough money and kicked her out? Or was it just a regular old family life? It's completely unclear. We do know that she lived in an area where there's people called the Tonka. They are boat people. They live on the water. There are entire villages on the water really close together. It still looks that way. There's still these people that live there, although their culture is dying and a lot of their kids are moving on land. So that's all we know. Very sketchy information to be sure, which is a serious bummer. Perhaps in a time machine, this might be a useful thing to go back and find out. But our subject, Ching Shi, appears for the first time in the records at around the age of 20, where she is working as a prostitute in a floating brothel. The place where she pops up in history is called a flower boat, more commonly known as a brothel. Apparently, in this area, we're talking about the old Canton, China area, there were eight 
thousand brothels in that area. This is huge business. And these are actually, I'll put some pictures in the show notes. They're actually kind of pretty. I, I don't want to glamorize or romanticize it at all, but there's these very ornate carvings on them and these flat aft decks. They're almost like a party barge. And I guess they kind of were because like in our episode about Annie Chambers, who was a madam here in Kansas City, they were houses of horizontal entertainment, but also music and eating and dancing and opium. <laughs> so there was a, it was like a one-stop entertainment place for men coming into the area. Maybe cast my Western eye back to what went on in an American Wild West saloon. The lonely traveler ends up at the oasis of vice and pleasure. <laughs> the oasis party barge oasis of vice and pleasure you take your pick <laughs> technically these flower boats were illegal but as long as bribes were paid to officials and as long as the brothels weren't on land well carry on you guys i can't even believe this is still true casinos here in this state have to float Right. <laughs> or be built on artificial moats next to a river i'm not joking um because they called it riverboat gambling and then added continuous boarding in 2002. Weirdos. <laughs> this is not an old timey thing that has lasted. These modern casinos here harken back to an age old tradition. So I'm guessing maybe the moving water washes away the vice. I don't know. That water didn't wash away too much back then because it was it was hot there. This is a humid, uh, tropical environment. All these sweaty bodies, all this uh, debris and foulness in that water. This was gross water. <laughs> so I don't know how much washing was being done. It should be noted that there were all kinds of boats, floating barbershops, grocery stores, coal merchants. A lot of activity was happening on the water and so all the waste just got dumped. Ironically, here is a description from a much later customer to a flower boat. These boats resemble enormous Venetian gondolas, another place you don't want to go swimming. <laughs> the greatest part of the hold is taken up by the saloon, furnished with the best style of furniture. In the middle is placed a large round marble top table, and the chairs are of Chinese ebony elaborately carved whilst the saloon is lighted up by the latest European swinging lamps. The women here, it should be noted, did not bind their feet. Not only were they not the right social class to bind their feet, um, but they belonged to the ethnic Tonka population that, quote, respectable Chinese people referred to as sea gypsies. Apt enough, given her future profession. But Ching Shi and her fellow prostitutes were driven to this job by economic necessity. Most of the Tonka men were sort of forced to become fishermen, and a lot of Tonka women had to turn to this sort of a job. They were treated as, quote, no better than slaves and cruelly beholden to their masters. Written by a man who was a customer. So evidently, that was not important to him. Ooh. Yes. So it's no surprise that Ching Shi began to develop her strategic skills. Some may call it ruthlessness. Folklore says that she began to function as a spy, a person who dealt in secrets, like Finn O'Dare in the Hunger Games series, you know, a powerless slave person who finds a sort of power in information. Hmm. Because who were her customers? Government officials, local landowners, foreign merchants. The emperor, by the way, had funneled all foreign trade through Canton as a way to control prices and 
gather taxes. And there were actually (laughs) a set of rules called the five countermeasures against the barbarians. And I wonder if Ching Shi violated rule number four. I'm almost (laughs) sure she did. Which is, Chinese citizens must not attempt to gain information on the current market situation from foreign barbarians. Hmm. (laughs) But you know what? That's not going to be the first rule she breaks. So I think we're okay. Well, it's amazing what people share in those intimate situations. The story says she became known for her astute advice. And perhaps she had a favorite client, a pirate named Ching Yi. Or <laughs> did you read that the floating brothel was boarded by pirates? And Yes, there's more than one version of how they actually met. Um In one version, she was captured along with all the other prostitutes and brought onto Chang Yi's ship. Now, Chang Yi was a a pirate. Let's get that out there. He was already a pirate. He came from a line of pirates. They had been in piracy for 200 years by the time our story begins. So in this version, he captures all the prostitutes and brings them on board. And as he's surveying the lot, he's caught by her beauty and he asks that she be untied. She gets her hands and feet untied and springs up and tries to gouge his eyes out. I'm not sure if he was delighted by her spunk or just excited or whatever. But in this version, that's when they meet and he falls in love with her. Also, how is he going to board this prostitute ship when they're all chained together? Was it the one on the end? Yeah. Don't I mean, know. the pirates would go into villages and get the whole village. I mean, even on land. So I guess it would be possible. I don't know. I'm not a pirate. (laughs) I think I knew that about you. So the other version implies that he was a long-term favored client, and they had developed some sort of relationship over the years. They met at her place of business. He was enraptured by her beauty. Uh, When she spoke, he fell even harder because of her intellect and all the knowledge that she had accumulated through her years as a prostitute. And that's when he fell in love with her. So there's different versions out there. Who knows? She warned him about an upcoming Chinese Navy crackdown on pirates based on some other information and saved his bacon, like one step ahead of the sword, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So that might cause true love or at least hint at a prior relationship. Either way, it doesn't matter because when Cheng Shi was 26, Chung Yi proposed marriage to her. More like a partnership because she negotiated equal power in his work, which was a fleet of pirate ships, and also equal share of the profits. Note, in writing with witnesses. That's why I think it wasn't Thunderbolt City because you don't see an attractive person like at a bar and immediately Uh decide they're worthy of half your house and all that responsibility. You just don't. No, no. They could have spent some time, you know, talking on the pillow and she could have been negotiating the whole time. Mm, Probable, question mark. Thumbs down. (laughs) Well, also, as to true love, he was already in some sort of an intimate relationship with a much younger man named Qian Po Tsai, which I think means Qian the Kid. Which is hilarious to me. Anyway, um, he had taken this boy captive at the age of 15, and the boy was now not only his lover, but a trusted lieutenant. So there's that up in the air, too. I don't know how much true love there was to go around. So Cheng Shi was now known as Ching Yi Sao, 
which literally means wife of Ching Yi. The way people call me Mrs. Graham before we get all overwrought about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, also the way there's of Fred and all the other of ladies in The Handmaid's Tale. (laughs) Because the actual of is in it. It's wife of Chang. So it's of Chang, of Fred, of Chris. Of Brian. <laughs> Margaret Atwood has said that she hasn't put anything in her story that hasn't existed somewhere in the world at some point. True. Uh, you know, look at old pictures. What you see is Mrs. Peter Smith. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have her name anymore. She doesn't have her first name. She doesn't have her last name. I'm not sure that wife as piece of husband is an admirable thing. Don't get me wrong, but it's not uncommon or, in fact, obsolete. So there it is. <laughs> anyway. The newlyweds adopted the young lover, Chan Po Tsai, and we talked about this during the Empress Suchi episode. Adoption of even grown men, nephews, or favorite underlings had the force of law here. It theoretically limited controversy when it came time to inheriting either power or money. Um, even if you adopted an adult, that was considered completely a reasonable thing. I read so many things where people are shocked that they adopted. I think the relationship thing is weird, uh-huh. <laughs> the, the interconnected <laughs> relationship thing, but simply adopting an adult was a completely accepted practice. And I do want to talk about husband Ching Yi for just a moment. He himself was the son of a temple builder, but the extended Ching family had been plying their trade as pirates since the 1600s. And at one point, Things had gotten so bad that the Chinese government at the time forced all the citizens to move inland like 10 miles and literally burned everything to the ground on the coast just to cut off the pirate supply chain. Um, That's how desperate the government was to get rid of the successful Qing pirate empire from the way back. But the current Changs built most of their reputation and traditions operating off the coast of Vietnam as a very organized set of mercenaries on the side of the rebels. Ching Yi trained with his distant cousin, Ching Chi, who was the big name among what was called the Petty Pirates. They were all these independent pirates who came together and worked for the rebels in Vietnam and became a team that had been happening for so long, entirety of Ching Shi's life. So with a new husband trusted by and related to the big cheese, life looked pretty rosy. Surely this situation would continue. However, less than a year after Ching Shi was married, this chief pirate cousin was beheaded by the new Vietnamese emperor. Sad trombone. And he was very firm about cracking down this emperor. There will be no more tolerance for Chinese pirates in my waters. The end. This is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what life as a pirate wife is like. Do you love discovering new products? Are you a beauty and fashion maven who's constantly on the hunt for the next best thing? Then you have to try FabFitFun. FabFitFun allows women everywhere to discover new products, including must-have brands and ones that we already know. I love getting my box. It's like Christmas. 
<laughs> okay, so there's a new product that they put in the box that I don't think I would have thought to buy that I really, really like. In fact, I tried to get yours off you and you said no. <laughs> it's the Cores Wild Rose Night Facial. I think it smells delightful. Most importantly, so does my husband. It really does seem to wake up my skin quickly. Like it, mm-hmm. I, you can tell in a couple of days. Yes, that's why I wouldn't give my jar to you. <laughs> <laughs> the 2019 Spring Box has a total retail value of at least three hundred. And $47. Yeah, this spring box, they really did a great job. There was a backpack in there. I'm not a backpack person, but I thought I'd give it a whirl. And the first time I took it out, somebody complimented me on it. Like, oh, I guess I am a backpack person. Well, I am looking forward to the next box for sure. I like this element of surprise and um, I am very pleased with that Cora's facial. I can't stop talking about <laughs> how good that is. Well, you also can sign up for FabFitFun today. These boxes always sell out. Use our code HISTORY to get $10 off your first box by going to FabFitFun.com to sign up and start getting the box for a life well lived. So use the promo code HISTORY to get $10 off your first box. That's a $200 value for only $39.99 by going to fabfitfun.com and using the code HISTORY to get that $10 off your first FabFitFun box. So the Vietnamese emperor is incensed and the Chinese pirates all scattered back home and started cannibalizing each other. It was civil war or the most uncivil of wars for years. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold up, said Mr. and Mrs. Ching. People, we can do better than this. Parlay, parlay, parlay. We had all worked together in Vietnam. Let's do that again here. The seven major pirate leaders were invited to a summit. You've seen this depicted on screen in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. By the way, the character of Mistress Ching may just be based on Ching Shi. So we'll give you a link to the character analysis. People with more time than me have already done it. (laughs) (laughs) Mistress Ching is called the leader of the Pirate Confederation of the Pacific in that movie. And, uh... Technically, makers, Disney and Jack Sparrow, that woman should be the most powerful person at that table. Stay tuned for that information. Real Ching Yi and Ching Shi had drafted a document and they wanted to hash it out with everybody. Rules of unionization, of sticking together against their real enemies, the Chinese government, barbarian ships, other Chinese ships, and people who irritatingly insist on holding on to their own money. Can't have that. No, not at all. (laughs) So after some days of discussion, the six fleets were organized. They broke them down into different colors. So every single fleet was flying under a flag of a different color. There was red, black, blue, green, yellow, and white. The biggest of them was the red flag fleet. And that was the fleet that was led by Ching Yi and Ching Shi. So here are the rules of the Pirate Confederation after this most famous of summits. Number one, all vessels must fly one identifiable flag. No switching for convenience purposes. I guess that's been troublesome. Number two, honor each other's protection contracts. Number three, stay within your territories. The blue, yellow, and green operated in the West with kind of overlapping territories. That's fine. And then the red, black, 
and white in the more open East, since they were bigger. Number three, thou shalt not seize another member's rightfully stolen booty. (laughs) Good. And they created their own court and judicial system to deal with offenders. I think they put a lot of thought into this based on the behavior they knew that they would do. (laughs) Who better to organize things that other people shouldn't do than the people that do them themselves, if that makes any sense. Something I thought was interesting is they put in place almost like a system of welfare um, Mm -hmm. that would assist members in lean times. I think it was a loan, like they didn't just hand you over money, but say the government had cracked down on you or you had lost some battles, they would help you get back on your feet by fixing your ships and um, chipping in for your supplies and stuff. So I thought that Mm -hmm. was actually very sophisticated. Even in the beginning days, it really set them up so that they could spend more time looting and less time battling each other, you know, and just be an organized pirating machine. Several of the other fleet captains had either trained under Ching Yi or been his colleagues in that fight in Vietnam. So I think there was a feeling of loyalty, question mark, and brotherhood, trust to a certain level, I guess, although I cannot imagine the security at this meeting. (laughs) (laughs) I'm cracking up thinking about everybody's eyes like shifting left to right and people's hands on their swords and stuff. Well, the leader of the Black Fleet, um, had been another fisherman's son who'd been kidnapped and turned into a pirate when he was 14 by Ching Yi. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, my. Oh, my. Well, <laughs> so the agreement was signed. The hierarchy went as follows. The fleet captains, Ching Yi being the first among equals. So he's the captain, but not exactly the boss. It's hard to explain. It's a lot like the Scottish clans. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're the most powerful, so we're listening to you until you lose your power kind of thing. Um, so there were squadrons underneath of between 10 and 40 ships and up to 1,500 pirates. And then below that were the individual junk captains who controlled all the little tiny satellite boats that went with their own boat, rowboats, etc. The biggest vehicles they had were called Yang Chuan or Ocean junks. A quick note on the word junk. It's from Portuguese junco. It's no relation to junk meaning garbage. Because I was like, gosh, why do they keep calling it a junk? I guess that word as garbage has a whole other etymology. Well, um, the big ones could carry up to 400 men and 30 cannons, almost as big as the USS Constitution. If you've ever seen that in Boston, bigger than you'd think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there'd be a whole bunch of medium-sized ships, which is the ones that you usually see painted, that were generally captured merchant ships that they retrofitted with cannons and could carry around 200 crew members. Although when you look at pictures of them, obviously no photos, but if you look at pictures of them, they look like they're so much smaller and that they're lower to the ground. But in actuality, underneath the deck, there was a place for people to live, although people kind of, you know, slept wherever. And there was a cabin for the captain and his family. His family. (laughs) There were families on these boats. It wasn't just all men. Like you think of, you know, the golden age of piracy back in Europe where women were, you know, forbidden. That wasn't the case here at all. Women served on these boats alongside their husbands. And based on the fisherman's tradition that a wife would take over the fishing business if the husband died, the same thing happened on the pirate ships. So the women were there with their husbands fighting next to them. Okay, so I have a nerdy thing to say. Okay. And this is from the depths of my memory that the same thing operated in medieval times in Europe. In certain trades, if the husband died, the wife could become a member of the guild. And I just want to point to the word Brewster, which I think is a widow of a brewer. Before that, 
I do believe that the making of ale was all ladies' work. They were called ale wives. <laughs> That's how I guess that. But as time went on and it became increasingly more commercially profitable to sell beer and ale, men started taking it over. And so Brewsters were pretty rare. The exception rather than the rule. And um, let's see, Baxter, a baker's widow in similar situation. To be perfectly correct, I think that the Baxter became ultimately either boy bakers or girl bakers eventually, but it started out as female baker. That's all I know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and you just pulled that out of your brain. Well, so I'm just saying it. it's rare on the ocean. In Chinese culture, um, this was maybe a little more common, but it's not unheard of even mm -hmm. in the Western world. So let the operation begin. What is that? Let the wild party start on land and sea. The region where they operated, the South China Sea, that narrow crescent of coast right there, was just perfect for pirates. There were all of these trade routes that had to go between islands. I mean, hundreds of little tiny islands, all covered in vegetation for easy hiding. There were coves everywhere where pirates could hide. And honestly, the armies of the various countries did not do a very good job of protecting the trade routes. And um, there were lots of bottlenecks where commercial traffic kind of had to gather while they waited for someone to kind of go through a narrow strait. <laughs> It was, just, mm -hmm. it was like a perfect storm. I know. And so the government of China says this is the perfect place to have all merchant ships travel into. Like, this is it. This is the only place you can go. Bureaucrats make the world go round. At least they made the pirates world go round. However, accidentally. First of all, let's talk about guaranteed income. Maybe call it the pirates base pay or salary, which is called the protection racket. The salt merchants, for example, learned earlier than anyone else that if you hope to reach your destination, you better pay for a pirate escort. I mean, the salt came from seawater evaporation. It's not like you're going to be able to just pick up and move for security purposes. Other cargo ships with such regular routes quickly followed suit. It's just the cost of business because it's easier to take a small guaranteed hit than a large probable one. And fans of Terry Pratchett will recognize a very familiar scenario here. When you pay your money to the Thieves Guild and a thief sticks you up in the street, all you have to do is show him that you're prepaid and he walks away. <laughs> so there you go. It's like a toll booth. They know they're going to have to pay it and they're just paying it to them directly. Salt was a good uh, moneymaker for these pirates. The word salary that we've been referring to as their base income literally comes from the amount that Roman soldiers were given that was earmarked for them to be able to buy salt. And anyway, it seems like these merchants must have had enough of a profit margin to allow them to accommodate for this, let's call it, um, involuntary tax on their services. They were making a 400 to 500 percent profit on every trip. So paying this fee is just part of their operating costs because they were still bringing in, you know, all the tea and the spices and the silk and the porcelain. They were bringing that back home and they were importing into China opium that they had been growing in India. Opium had just been made illegal in China within the last decade. Needless to say, the prices went up. So nobody's clean here is all I'm saying. Everybody's a smuggler, mostly the British and the Americans. By the way, in this particular deal, 
So it was nice to say, you know, scratch my back. I'll scratch yours. Let's make some money. So on land, imagine this. The sun is rising. You're just up. You're waiting for the water to boil for your tea. And you catch sight of all these red pirate pennants flying in your harbor. Little boats full of men and eight-foot pikes bristling out the side or pulling up to the wharf. And you're bracing for your inevitable doom. You will die before your water is boiled um, when your mayor steps out and holds out a piece of paper and they all melt away because your village has a deal with the Black Fleet. You have paid and they have agreed not to kill you and take all your stuff. (laughs) Seems like a good deal. (laughs) Honor among thieves being what it is, as much as the Red Fleet might be tempted by your wealth and supplies, they were bound by their reciprocal agreement with the Pirate Confederacy. So as long as you've paid somebody and didn't lose your paperwork, you were going to do okay. Well, you have to remember to get to that stage, there has to have been a lot of killing to say, if you don't pay us, this is what's going to happen to your village. We are going to take all your women and children. We are going to slaughter everybody. So that is what happens, you know, to get to the point where they have this smooth uh, criminal program going on. You know what I mean? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think the early villages definitely paid the price. But once the news got around, everyone seemed very eager to sign up. Absolutely. So these salesmen would give you every opportunity to save yourself. The Pirate Confederacy even set up pay stations, like depots for you, like a bill pay booth at a store to make it easy to keep up with your protection payments. (laughs) I read this somewhere and this seems too good to be true, but I love the thought of this, so I'm going to say it. Okay. <laughs> Take this with a grain of salt from the salt merchant. I do believe that landing parties had the forms on them if you wanted to sign up on the spot. And I'm imagining there was a giant, quote, convenience fee oh, <laughs> for <yeah>. the on-the-spot <laughs> service. I would guess there is. There you go. So there's your nice guaranteed income that funded a lot of expansion. And the bonuses, if we're thinking about salary versus bonus, the bonuses would be all the booty that you collected. And there were strict rules about the distribution of this also. You had to be open about what you took from your victims. If you hid stuff for yourself or your own boat, that was punishable by death. So typically the actual taker of the items and the stuff got 20% of the value once everybody noted it, and the rest went into the general fleet fund to buy supplies and equipment and perform repairs and to help your brethren who weren't doing so well as you. There were actually pursers that worked on the lead ship in every fleet, nerd pirates who did all the accounting. Cheng Shi was sort of the CFO of the entire Pirate Confederacy operation. Each squadron's purser ultimately reported to her. So you want to watch your P's and Q's, metaphorically. Here's how successful they are. At the height of the Pirate Confederacy era, the Red Fleet typically could travel with a couple of million dollars in modern money as profit. Just mm-hmm. driving around with it in the car. And I don't even <laughs> like to leave, like, my purse in the car while I go get gas. <laughs> and they so, go into war with $2 million <laughs> in the front room. It's petty cash. No big, no big. Yeah, and a ship that could go down or go burn up. Yeah. Note to salvage people. Chances are there's a lot going on in the uh, South China Sea uh, under the water. I'm sure people are on it. <laughs> I'm sure they are. As time went on, the pirates had more and more armor, weapons, men, ships, money. They supported a vast network of land-based suppliers of goods and services. They were vital to the economy of many places. I just want to show you how big 
this network is. A government crackdown on the pirate confederacy's supply chain netted 500 arrests of people on land and caused hardly a dent in operations. It was a bother, like flies on the nose of a horse, but it wasn't going to kill them. (laughs) Which is pretty much what happened every single time that the Chinese government went after them for many years. Well, I also want to kind of specify how the Chinese thought of piracy. It was not so much theft as in small 'er ne'er-do-wells being naughty, the way we might think of a pirate, you know, like Jack Sparrow or or somebody. Um, They saw it as basically freelance war. We can Uh take it and therefore we will. You know, it was like a whole bunch of seagoing warlords. So to them, it was a completely legitimate, macho and respectable occupation. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a fine distinction, but I think it's important. It's very fine. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, they weren't being naughty. They weren't like bad children. They were men no. folk that w- were taking down the opposition, just like tribe against tribe. It was war. Uh, yeah, no, I, I understand. I understand. And I thought of it along the lines of this is just how they're surviving. This is what they know how to do, you know? So they're doing a pretty good job though. Yeah. I did a lot of justifying to try and get, get on the side of the pirates on this one. Oh, they're super bad. Don't get me wrong. I don't admire their tactics at all. They committed a lot of murder. They committed a lot of mayhem. They were horrible. It reminded me of that show Vikings that has just this violence that erupts out of nowhere and you have no warning. I stopped watching it. My feet can't leave the room soon enough. But it's just the cost of doing business was all of this crazy and casual violence. So mm-hmm. I am not idolizing them. I don't, you know, I don't think they were honorable or this whole thing was honorable. I just wanted to talk about how they felt about it. Yeah, no, I agree. And it is still going on, not in as big a scale, but uh, my parents lived on a sailboat all over the world and the boat was made in Hong Kong. So they lived in Hong Kong on their sailboat for several years and kind of sailed around in that area. Well, they were always warned about pirates because they do still exist. And my parents and their friends, they would always go in groups when they were going someplace else to, you know, Vietnam or wherever they were going. It was always in a group to keep them safe. One day, my parents were traveling with their friends and this boat comes on the horizon and it is going wicked fast. It pulls up near them and it's this speedboat painted kind of like a dragon with fiery painting on the bow. And it was in every sense that we would think of it as pirate ship. And they asked my parents some questions like, do you want to buy cigarettes? Which just to me sounds like code of something. Fortunately, the other boats they were traveling with, the men came out with their firearms on their hips and the boat left, you know, and people die. Americans live on their boats. It's so romantic and it's a wonderful life, but it's a real threat that they're facing, you know, dying by pirates, getting their boats stolen and, you know, being murdered. Happening now. That's really scary. Yes, it is. So we we talked about Grace O'Malley. I had to come to um, a certain place in my head just to approach her because all I'm thinking of is these modern day pirates that still exist and are brutal. And that's how they were back then, too, except through a different lens, you know. Mm -hmm, Mm hmm. 
So what is Ching Shi doing all this time? What is her role? Now, she was in a leadership position because she's she's leading with her husband. That is unusual. The women on the boats weren't unusual. We already talked about that. Leadership positions for women and piracy at the time were very unusual. As a matter of fact, it would be another hundred years before another woman would be a pirate leader out of Hong Kong. She was in charge of you know keeping track of the money and doing the behind the scenes thing while Cheng Yi was the guy that was on deck with the sword and he was the face of the leadership team and she was almost I don't want to say she was the brains because he was a ruthless and successful pirate but she was brainy of the operation in the background I did read that her husband was loud and liked to stomp around and bluster and wave things Mm -hmm. (laughs) but people were more afraid of her Mm -hmm. because she was very quiet and spoke in a measured tone. But if she scolded you, you knew you were in trouble because the anger would linger (laughs) and there were grudges held that never got forgiven. That is an interesting dynamic. That guy's loud, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) she makes me pee my trousers. (laughs) So that goes back to that old thing. Is it better for a prince to be loved or feared? It's the age old question. Ching, she would say feared. (laughs) Duh. Uh, What else was she doing at this time? Well, in the first few years of their marriage, she gave birth to two sons. We don't hear too much about them, but they're on the ship. They're being raised on these pirate ships. That blew my mind to imagine this, you know, this powerful woman behind the scenes, you know, puppet mastering everything and having babies. And I don't know how you're going to childproof a pirate ship. No. It's hard enough to childproof your regular old house. They'll always find a way to get into trouble. And can you imagine with a hold full of gunpowder and broken glass and angry men and swords? I think it's really a losing proposition. (laughs) Maybe that's why we don't hear about them. Oh, dear. Now, I would love to be able to tell you a story like we told you in Grace O'Malley, how she was, you know, in labor and there was a battle and they called down because they needed her. And Grace O'Malley went up on deck like, really, I can't even have a break for this. But we don't have any stories like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's I think I feel closer to Grace O'Malley because she had a sense of humor that I resonated with, even though she was also a very violent person. Mm-hmm. I just didn't get a lot of... Well, um, there's not a lot of depth in the research on Ching Shi. You mm-hmm. know, there was more on Grace O'Malley, which is weird because she was further back in time, but there was a lot more documentation of her life than there is of Cheng Shi's. So we never are able to get like that depth of her personality. After six years of co-rule, Ching Yi was blown or thrown overboard during a violent storm. Some say it was the waves. Some say it was the wife. (laughs) (laughs) Alternately, he could have been struck in the chest by a cannonball during a battle in Vietnam, which would also do it. But the end result, Ching Yi, Confederation head honcho, was dead. Beckett and I would like to thank Third Love for helping to support the show. And we would like to thank you for helping to support the companies that support us. I've talked about Third Love bras before, how they are my absolute favorite. So what makes them different? Well, for starters, Third Love uses data points generated by millions of women who've taken the Fit Finder quiz. With that data, they design bras with breast size and shape in mind for a perfect fit and a premium 
feel. That Fit Finder quiz, you can go to their website and take it. It takes about a minute. Over 12 million women have taken it to date so that Third Love can find the perfect bra for you. Now, recently, I've got a lace back t-shirt bra. It's getting to be spring, finally. It was a really long winter and I'll be wearing tank tops soon. And even with the 24-7 Third Love bra, which is my absolute favorite, my bra straps show sometimes with some of my tank tops. This bra is designed to wear under those tank tops because there's pretty lace on the back straps. I guess that's how they got the name lace back. If I don't love that bra, which I know I will, I would have 60 days to wear it, but that's not special to me. We all have 60 days to wear the bra, wash it, put it to the test, and if we don't love it, we can return it. No questions asked. Exchanges are free and easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they're offering our listeners 15% off their first order. Go to thirdlove.com chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's Third Love. You're going to need to spell it out. T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks, C-H-I-C-K-S. So Mrs. Ching is a widow now. And in fact, this is where she gets the name of Ching Shi that we have been using the whole time because Ching Shi means widow of Ching. So she still doesn't have her own name. No. <sighs> But power seems to have been transferred relatively seamlessly to Ching Shi. She had participated or created the strategy. She did have a legal document, for what that's worth. But she was sort of famous for her advice and her military strategy, I guess, for being able to think several moves ahead. Yeah, she didn't really like don black clothing, you know, and sit back and wait for the casseroles to roll in and retire. She just kind of stepped into the void and went to all the captains and said, look, you know me, you were loyal to my husband. By association, you've been loyal to me. Let me just take over now. And they really didn't have anything to say. They were like, all right, why not? It's been working well for us. And then she did something to cement her position because I think the only man who was in a position to challenge her for the loyalty of the fleet might have been her stepson, Cheng Pao Tsai, who was now 21, had been a trusted lieutenant with his own fleet, um, you know, subfleet, mm-hmm. for six years. And so she initiated a sexual relationship with him. So now he's loyal to her, too. <laughs> so I am not sure how legal that is, even in the United States. Woody Allen noted stepchild Mary are actually married in Venice, Italy. So I have no way to trace how legal that is in different states. Yeah. I looked and then I was like, I don't want my Google search to be coming out. No. (laughs) And I, you know, I don't care enough to be branded in that way. So I'm going to let that go. But I am assuming it's legal, at least in some states. So anyway, the de facto leader, Ching Shi, had a relationship with, I guess, the possible legal heir Mm -hmm. uh, in case of dispute. And he could kind of just step into the role that Cheng Yi had been playing, you know, the guy on deck because he's been doing it. He's been there. It's not that big of a stretch. Right. And his loyalty never seemed to be questioned. I am interested to know how that went because he was kidnapped at 15. Mm -hmm. And this is only six years later. He has no resentment. He has no... I I just don't know. I feel the same way about the black fleet captain who was stolen at 14 to become a pirate. He has no lingering resentment against his kidnappers or is it Stockholm Syndrome? Um, I don't know 
But I do know that fishermen often did a side hustle in doing piracy. So piracy and fishermen were kind of a dual job. So maybe it was something that he had already been like fantasizing about. Well, and and a part of, I mean, maybe his father had done a few small time raids. Um, We don't know. He knew about it and he knew how powerful it was. And it was almost like a promotion to be taken off the fishing ship and put onto, you know, the red flag fleet. Big deal. And I guess if you're a poor teenager surviving Mm -hmm. by your fishing and then you're put into this world of like silk and gold, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can see how your head might be turned. Okay, I've just talked myself into understanding a little bit more. (laughs) Also, I have a little other thought, too. I wonder if he agreed to that relationship with her because, let's see, her acceptance and promotion of him meant a lot more than his adoption, perhaps, to the fleet. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the first things that she did is issue an additional code of conduct for people who operated in her red fleet. It's not clear if this also transcended across the pirate confederacy. I do know these applied to the red fleet. Anyone caught freelancing on giving commands that hadn't come from her or defying her commands was instantly beheaded. Anyone stealing from the common treasury or from the villages that supplied the fleet, the first time they were beaten and the second time off with their heads. If you sexually assaulted any female captives, chop. If you had consensual sex without permission or while on duty, chop for you and she gets weighted down and thrown overboard. However, fair enough. Men are lonesome. If you would like to marry her, that's fine. But you'd better be faithful or I'll cut your head off. Also, in our modern military here, I do believe you can still be prosecuted for adultery under certain conditions. I will post a link because I did go down that rabbit hole. Even now, adultery is still a crime in 23 states, mostly a misdemeanor. But I think there are some states where it's technically a felony. I want to say Massachusetts. So... Be careful. Also, some accounts from captives later seem to contradict this whole policy. Weirdly, I bet they are misinterpreting women sailors as the captain's wives, maybe? Anyway, there are several reports of captains having multiple wives. I think it was cultural misunderstanding. And where are they getting these brides from? Well, often they rounded up hostages from the villages and decided that the Ugly ones could be sent back to the village and the pretty ones could be bought or given as wives. Okay. Who decides what's ugly and what's pretty? I don't get it. It's in the eye of the beholder. I guess. But nevertheless, that is not a good fate for lady persons either. (laughs) These rules were strictly enforced and quickly executed. We have the narrative of some Western captives and they were startled (laughs) by the swiftness and brutality of Chinese pirate justice. And it would certainly get their attention. The crime was committed. The guy was brought up. The head was cut off. The end. Boom, boom. You know what? We haven't really talked about captives for ransom. So high-ranking foreigners caught up in their dragnets were often kept sometimes for months in until their ransoms were negotiated. How's that for frightening experience? Mm -hmm. Witnessing what was happening. Um, Still, you have hope. Unlike other captives who were sold off as slaves or impressed into the crew, sometimes Cheng Shi and friends would capture a Chinese Navy ship and say to them, all right, my friends, you have two choices. A, please be free to join our crew. 
and become pirates. B, or we will nail your feet to the floor and beat the crap out of you with these sticks until you die. But the choice was always yours. The most famous captive, due to his diary that was later published, was a man named Richard Glasspool. He provides us one of the only two primary sources from this time, which is why a lot of these stories, we just don't know exactly what happened. I mean, he was a little biased, don't you think, being a captive at all and not actually speaking the language? Eh, what's the credibility on it? Oh, see, I think he's very credible because he saw it all. He saw it all, but he was being held hostage. Hey, they made me go participate in this battle and I saw them walking around carrying heads because the captain was going to pay them for each head they brought back. Right. That no, seems I like a kind I don't of dried, think <laughs> yeah. like, I don't think he's making anything up, but, oh. you know, just his perspective. Oh. It wasn't like he was on a research mission or as he was a, you know, reporter or something. Yeah, he was a man um, basically in fear of his life at all times. So I'm not going to come down on the side of Mr. Glasspool being a biased observer, but I will go ahead and concede to you that he is probably suffering from cultural misunderstanding, at least part of the time. I have to tell you the title of his <laughs> book because I don't even know if I have enough breath to do it in one breath. Mr. Glasspool and the Chinese Pirates being the narrative of one Mr. Richard Glasspool of the ship Marquis of Eli describing his captivity of 11 weeks and three days whilst held for ransom by the villainous Ladronis of the China Sea. Ladronis is Portuguese for pirate. <laughs> Maybe work on that title. I know. Well, look at all the SEO things in there. Oh, really? Here's what I want to say about SEO. I'm making a knife motion in the air. (laughs) Uh, um, I just want to read you a paragraph from his book. This is right when he got captured. At this time, a boat came and took me with one of my men and the interpreter on board the chief's vessel. I was then taken before the chief. He was seated on deck in a large chair dressed in purple silk with a black turban on. He appeared to be about 30 years of age, a stout, commanding-looking man. He took me by the coat and drew me close to him and questioned the interpreter very strictly, asking who we were and what was our business. I told him to say we were Englishmen in distress, having been four days at sea without provision. This he would not credit, but he said we were bad men, and he would put us all to death. And then he ordered some men to put the interpreter to torture until he confessed the truth of our identities. Like, that's not cool. Not at all. Why does the interpreter get the shaft? (laughs) Because he's not telling him the truth, is the thought. I think it is funny. I have had that interpreted that he thought Ching Shi was a man, but I think it wasn't Ching Shi. It was probably uh, Chan Po Tsai. Yes, I agree. Because I remember reading something else that said that he always wore purple. That was his color. Nice. So, yes, that's what I thought, too. And later on, Richard Glasspool mentions, like, I wonder why he didn't act right away. And then he said it was probably because he was waiting for instructions from his admiral. Okay, so if that guy has to wait for, quote, his admiral, that's Ching Shi. Mm-hmm. Right. All rules came through her. And remember that the new thing in her code of conduct, that if you don't follow a rule, you get beheaded? Yep. At first... The Chinese pirates told the British government they wanted the equivalent of $100,000. And Richard Glasspool is like, you might as well kill me now because they're not going to pay that. (laughs) I'm just here to tell you I'm not that important. Ultimately, after a space of about four months, the Chinese pirates settled for a very specific amount, 1,915 pounds sterling, two cases each of gunpowder and opium and 
a telescope, which seems very random. <laughs> no, not at all, because they can see better from a distance. <laughs> I mean, this is how they're getting guns. Piracy wasn't it started. They, were, they didn't have guns. They were fighting hand-to-hand with knives, and then they got cannons because they took over some ships that had cannons, and then they got guns because they took over some ships that had guns. And um, Chang Pao Tsai had this lieutenant, like a buddy from childhood, mm-hmm. whose wife, for some reason, had connections with the British. And through some kind of corrupt British operator, they were able to funnel British guns right to the top of the Red Mm -hmm. Fleet based on this guy's wife. And I don't know if she'd been a servant in a British household or it was something very random like that. But they were able to get through the back door a lot Mm -hmm. of um, guns. You know what? That actually um, tells the story of how far their network went. England. It wasn't just China. In addition to the conscripted Navy men, fishermen in great waves due to some economic pressures on land decided that they were going to volunteer to become pirates. And the pirates were able to be so choosy now that they required you to sign up for a long period of time. None of this one and done, whether you're fleeing economic woes or legal trouble, we don't really care. Um, We welcome all of you, but you have to sign up for the long term. And hundreds and hundreds of volunteers wanted to join the Red Fleet. The Red Fleet, fame, fortune, glory, and money. You know, the more famous you are, the easier it is to get stuff. That's kind of where she was. (laughs) Yeah, but the fleet was growing and growing. You know, we started off the show saying that she was the most successful pirate in the history of piracy. So I want you to think about all the pirates you know, Jean Lafitte, Blackbeard, Queen Elizabeth I's own privateers. And please, let's not forget Captain Morgan. (laughs) (laughs) He was was real. (laughs) He was a real pirate. 1600s, British Henry Morgan. I don't know. Captain Morgan might have control of more than 80,000 people. (laughs) Well, the 1600s didn't. He only had 1,200 guys. (laughs) Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. You know, he's he's probably more powerful now. Yes. And then the most famous pirate, fictional or factual, is Jack Sparrow, and he only has one ship. So if you add all the famous pirates together that you can think of, you're looking at less than 8,000 in operation total. And Changshi had control of between 40,000 and 80,000 pirates. The ratio of power boggles my mind. And it, mm-hmm. again, goes back to the how come we don't know more about her. She was the most powerful pirate the world has ever seen, which is why I said Mistress Ching should have been the most powerful person at that table. Disney, Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> director. <laughs> So the Chinese Navy had become very wary without getting too much into Elizabeth Bathory territory, if you know what I mean. Just recall what she did to the sailors who would not become her pirates with the nails in their feet. She reserved, this is as far as I'm going to go, the worst possible atrocities for these particular enemies. The Chinese Navy infuriated her and drove her to the worst sort of behavior. That's as far as I'm going to go. I'll give you a link if you would like to explore that aspect a little further. There was a major battle where a general named Kuo Long On was so uh, intimidated by the prospect of being captured by Ching Shi and her army that he committed suicide rather than A, admit defeat, and B, become her captive. He feared for what he was about to face. And not only was the Chinese Navy prone to hide and um, 
act like they didn't see Ching Shi go by, as Ching Shi's might grew, they would outright sabotage their own ships so that, the, oh, can't go. Sorry. Boat's got a hole in it. <laughs> uh, we'll catch up with you guys. Everybody has a hole because you were fine yesterday, <laughs> you know? Well, just for if you like numbers, we've been throwing out numbers. I mean, there was one battle. There was 19,000 Navy soldiers up against at least 40,000 pirates. I mean, there's some numbers. <laughs> if I was a Navy man, I'd be skedaddling too. Man. Well, they also began attacking forts and garrisons. So a garrison and a fort, you know there's soldiers standing inside. They don't care. They got more power. The big boats would aim their cannons right at the fort and begin cover fire. And the smaller boats would use that to go in and just take care of business in hand-to-hand combat. Their sheer numbers often overwhelmed actually fortified installations. Her forces killed outright the regional commander of the Chinese Navy and then laid waste to the port of Canton, which reminds me of Pearl Harbor, the way it's described. They they come in and they basically just blow everything up that belonged to the Navy. Mm-hmm. It was a surprise attack that left the government boats in smoking wrecks all over the harbor. How scary is that if you live on a boat in the harbor? You're like, yeah. I'm not a Navy boat. <laughs> <laughs> white flag, white flag. That's right. So the government tried and tried to cut deals with the pirates. They were offering concessions if they leave off their ways. You, my friend, are not in a position to offer me what I can just take, though, is the thing. (laughs) The lower ranks began playing this game where they thought it was super funny to stop in, take money and sign the thing and then just rejoin the pirates at the next stop. Stop me. I have all your money. Find That's me right. then. Yeah. So well, these it, are opportunistic people. There's an opportunity right in front of them. So the urgent and perhaps naive requests from the government just became a big old fat in-joke. Yeah. Well, the government decided they were going to crack down on supplies. Remember in the 1600s how they made everyone move and burnt everything to stop trade? Well, these days, during Ching Shi's era, it just made the pirates take their little boats further up rivers to virgin territory. Mr. Government, you cannot possibly be everywhere. Yeah. So, so imagine if you're way up river, perfectly safe, you think, from pirates. Pirates, I've heard about them. And then here they are. At last, the Chinese government had to ask, quote, the barbarians for help. They have really not wanted to do this because they do not like being put in the barbarians' debt. They hated it. It was a loss of face. The British and Portuguese, who are kind of the powerhouse, they've been here the longest as barbarians, and um, they were not very nice the whole time, by the way. But anyway, Portuguese ships were there. The Portuguese had a territory in Macau, which is just north of the base of the Pearl River. So they had to ask a favor. Can we borrow some of your ships and some of your men? And there was a series of battles with the Portuguese between the Portuguese and the pirates. Several ended in what I would consider to be a draw. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't the overwhelming victory that the pirates were used to. I will say less than 10 days after the start of these battles, the Portuguese did launch fire ships to the pirates and either the pirates would get a hold of them and extinguish them and just seize them Or the wind changed and blew the fire ships right back at the Portuguese fleet and destroyed part of the Portuguese fleet. Sometimes you're the Spanish Armada. I'm saying. (laughs) Sometimes you lose even though you're powerful. But ultimately, human nature always plays a part 
in What Happens to History. The Red Fleet and the Black Fleet had been having a little controversy about who was actually the boss. And the pirate fleet started to get eaten up from within. The Black Fleet, with its 160 ships, accepted the government's offer. The fleet captain of the Black Fleet, whose name is Opotai, became sort of an influencer. His men were all promised their own farmland. For example, amnesty, freedom from prosecution, freedom from government interference. I think there was even, you didn't have to pay your taxes. I mean, it was like a good package. And he and his men peeled away, leaving the Red Fleet with not enough reinforcements to continue the battle, really. Yeah, the government had been upping their ante, you know, the things that they were offering, for years. There's all this pressure. And the thing that pops the cork on it is that the leader of the Black Fleet decides, okay, let's take the deal. Whoosh. 6,000 pirates went in that whoosh. Ching Shi and the rest of the pirates suffered a pretty big defeat in a battle called the Battle of the Tiger's Mouth that really kind of brought them a little bit to their knees. I, You know, they could have recovered in previous days. I think maybe they were just tired and kind of seeing the writing on the wall and it was so much trouble and maybe it was time to get out. And so Cheng Po Sai was the general in charge at the Battle of the Tiger's Mouth and they had been penned up in a river and it was just, they could see the end coming. A negotiator came on board and Cheng Po Sai was impressed because after he surrendered, he presented his fleet as, you know, booty. Like, here are my men. Here is my gold. Here is my treasure. You're the victor. Because they viewed it as war, not Mm -hmm. as petty piracy. Here are your spoils of war. My valiant opponent who has won. Not a position he was normally in, but he he knew how it was supposed to go in war. And the Portuguese admiral simply said, no, no, that's fine. You must keep your dignity. And Chang Potsai was so impressed by that honor, which he did not expect from a barbarian. The final negotiations came one day in 1810 when Ching Shi herself and a group of red flag fleet women and children presented themselves unarmed to the governor general in Canton. And this is when her negotiations really kicked into overdrive. For two days, she was there trying to get as much as she could out of this deal. She knew that time was on her side. She knew that she still had some power behind her and she knew how to really play people. She walked away with full pardons for her and Cheng Pao Sai, all of their wealth, a small fleet of 30 junks so they could go into the salt trade. Uh, They got funds to relocate and Cheng Pao Sai was given a military position in the Navy. So his new job is going to be to fight pirates. That is a level of trust that I just do not know. I know. <laughs> but, and I wonder if the Portuguese admiral's treatment of Ching Po Tsai gave Ching Shi the, I don't know, the like confidence maybe to do her negotiation because he really did rave about the surprising level of honor among the barbarians. And I think that gave her the drive to go ahead and just knock this out. Mm-hmm. Well, and she really did. She didn't really give up um, a whole lot. Um, the emperor's representative kind of wanted to have the symbolic moment where Cheng Shi and Cheng Po Tsai bowed before him, and they were not on board with that. So what happened instead was legally their parent-son relationship was dissolved, and they were married by this representative. And as part of that ceremony, they bowed. That's very diplomatic. It is very. They got their bow. They got married. You know, they got the new jobs, their new titles. She was now Lady Chen. So (laughs) she, quote, retired from ocean work 
at 35, the richest possible human that you can imagine. And then I wrote a, I wrote that she made out like a bandit. And then I crossed it out and I wrote dumb Alec. <laughs> so there you go. Behind the scenes, dumb Alec. What they did end up giving up was 350 pirates who were deemed the worst offenders. How they came to that, I have no idea. I'm sure she just gave them a name. They're like, look, yeah. somebody's got to be an example. And, exactly. you know, ooh, yeah. if you just made her mad the day before, that would suck. I know. 126 out of 350 were executed and the rest were exiled for certain periods of time. Whoa. Harsh. So the word is that she took her vast stores of cash and started a whole brothel and casino empire. I don't have any evidence of that actually happening. It could be that she just put the money into a villa in the country and had chickens and rivers of gold. She'd had the two children with um, Cheng Yi, and then she had a son with Cheng Po Tsai. So she raised children and had grandbabies, maybe. I don't know. Twelve years after their surrender, Cheng Po Tsai, who had risen rarely, rapidly in the ranks of the Navy, died supposedly of, you know, natural causes. And so he's out of the picture. The last thing that we have as far as documentation on her goes was in 1840. She tried to pull a fast one on the government and sue them for some money that supposedly Cheng Po Tsai had left in the hands of somebody else. It was all made up and it was thrown out of court. But that's the last time that there's any documentation that she was doing anything. So she's trying to, you know, pull a griff on the on the government. She was out of practice. Yeah. Yeah. They were wise to her. <laughs> and her end wasn't anywhere near as dramatic as any other point in her life. She died at the age of 69 in 1844 of unknown causes. I'm going to assume old age. 69? That seems pretty old. <laughs> it probably is in the pre-antibiotic sanitation years. Yeah, especially for a woman who spent her formative years and early adult years living in such a dangerous environment. And that'll bring us to the end of the scanty information history has on the life of Ching Shi, pirate queen of China, the most powerful pirate the world has ever known that the world knows nothing about. <laughs> All right, media section activated. <laughs> How about some books? The only children's book, I mean... Do I even call this a children's book? The only book that children should be exposed to about this person, I think, is Rejected Princesses by Jason Porath. There was a book and I couldn't find the actual book, but I read about it online and it looked really adorable. It's called The Tale of Desmond Dog by Sarah Brennan and illustrated by Harry Harrison. It looks really cute. She is a main character in the book, but, you know, all it's polished and shined up. All the corners have been knocked off is what you're saying. <laughs> oh, yeah. Big time. It looks cute. It's a series that's been going on for about 10 years called the Chinese Calendar Tales. There's 10 years worth of books. <laughs> yeah. And it focuses on this dog because oh. they, they do the Chinese, you know, Year of the Dog. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, cute. Yeah, really cute. I wish I could find it. So um, book-wise, there is a book called Pirates of the South China Coast by Diane Murray that I liked. And also, I got really into this Pirates, Terror on the High Seas from the Caribbean to the South China Sea by David Cordingly. I got a lot of information. It had um, like diagrams of a junk and mm -hmm. the layout of the cannons and like a cutaway picture. It was really neat, I thought. 
there's compilations that she appears in because really her story is suited for a compilation because it's so short. We talked about this one with Grace O'Malley. Pirate Women, The Princesses, Prostitutes, and Privateers Who Ruled the Seven Seas by Laura Suk Duncombe. That's a nice compilation um, of pirates. And here's another one more specific to women. Sea Queens, Women Pirates Around the World by Jane Yolen. And it has um, some nice illustrations in it. And then interestingly, in the back of this book, she lists some other women pirates, of which not too much is known, but just to get their name out there so they won't be forgotten or perhaps someone could write a book about them. That's nice. I thought that was a little nice bonus in that one. And then there's a scholarly work that has a very long title, reminiscent of Mr. Glasspool, Like Froth Floating on the Sea by Robert Anthony. Whoa. And no, it has a really long name. Like, oh, you're, I thought I thought you were going to do this one that I have right here that really does have a super duper long name. That one's kind of poetic, actually. This one is a translation from a Chinese book. It's called The History of Pirates Who Infested the South China Sea from 1807 through 1810, translated by Charles Newman. That's a pretty niche, you know, <laughs> but it's right in her era. This is when she was, you know, 1810 was her done, her done date, her, her retirement date. Well, and also I would be surprised if your library has Richard Glasspool's book, but you can read it online. I'll give you a link. I found it at books.google.com. Okay. So there you go. I thought surely it would have passed into the public domain by now and I would find it on Bartleby or or somewhere, but I didn't. Um, but nevertheless, you can find it on books.google.com and read the whole thing. Although I would say not on your phone. It's an exercise in frustration. <laughs> it's it's also in a collection book um, called The Pirate Super Pack. Oh, number I think 12. that's the book. You found it online? Yeah. Really? Because I bought it. (laughs) I'll send you the link right now. I couldn't find it. Oh, man. (laughs) I bought, I actually ended up buying three books for this and two of them are garbage. And I knew they were garbage going in. They were really short, but I was like, well, I wonder what's in there. And all I can say is if you're buying books on Amazon, read the reviews. (laughs) You might even see two from me. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. I mean, it was a buck. It wasn't like I spent a lot of money, but you could return it. Yeah, I suppose I could have. How much time do I have to do that? I don't know. 30 days. Oh, I'm going to try then. Two bucks back. It was a $2 book? No, there's two of them. They were a buck a piece. Oh, what? 99 cents. Then just throw them away. They're on my Kindle. Oh. Yeah, I don't know that I can return them. I was like, I was getting desperate because all I had was these compilations. I couldn't even really get my hands on Pirates of the South China Sea by Diane Murray. Uh, She does have an article in JSTOR that I'll link you up to called One Woman's Rise to Power, Cheng Yi's Wife, the Pirate. Okay. Yeah. As to websites, there is a very specific website called cindyvalar.com, and she has a project going on called Pirates and Privateers, of which Cheng Shi is part of her project. Other than that article in JSTOR and this one, I didn't find really anything else. I was kind of disappointed. I wanted to like go travel to the area. and There wasn't really anything that really tickled my fancy. Well, there is a wiki about Mistress Ching, the character in the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I think it's interesting that Mistress Ching, quote, obtained her power through the suspicious death of her husband. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess the people who produced that thought that maybe Ching, she pushed her husband overboard. Or it was more dramatic. Yes, this is the story. Also, um, from Camp Pendleton, a little definition of what constitutes adultery in the military. 
<laughs> Just saying. And then um, there is an upcoming movie still in production, according to Variety and IMDb, called Queen of Canton, that is supposed to be a biographical picture about Cheng Shi. And as far as I know, a Vietnamese-American actress has been attached to the project to play the main character. Oh, that'd be good. This is a great story for that because you can make up a bunch of, you know... The gray areas, you can color them in however you like in a movie. And all two of the historians might contact you. That would be the end. <laughs> no, that's right. We had talked about this during the Empress Su Chi podcast. There's a seven-part series on the China History podcast about the Qing dynasty. I didn't re-listen to it, but it was in the back of my head, so... That was there. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about Pirates of the Era, Daniela Bellini, History on Fire, episode 24, which is about Ching Shi, but really isn't about Ching Shi. I don't usually listen to podcasts about our subject because I just don't want to get those in my head. But this one, he talks for two hours and I'm like, what is he talking about the whole time? And he's just talking about the history of piracy in the South China Sea and specific battles. And it's really interesting if you love listening to his voice, which I do. <laughs> My favorite part of that show is where he goes, you know what I do about the English language. So imagine what I will do to the Chinese language. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you are hilarious. I love when he quoted the Princess Bride, though. And in closing, first of all, I am so sorry I didn't mention this book first. <laughs> it is called Thrilling Thieves, Liars, Cheats, and Cons Who Changed History by Brianna Dumont. I actually wanted to recommend this first, and so I said it in a different place, and thus my mistake. So just wanted to get that out there. But in closing, as we bring to a close our coverage of Ching Shi, Chinese Pirate Queen, this is where I wish I had learned how to say yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me in Mandarin. But unfortunately, I am not that skilled. So I'll just leave you with the thought that the most powerful, the most feared, the most admired, and the most intelligent pirate in all of history remains personally largely unknown. We hope more of her story can be uncovered in the future. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Let me tell you about PodX, where you have an opportunity to see us from May 31st to June 2nd of 2019. We are going to talk about women throughout history and podcasting in general. Have a drink. Tell us a story. Go to PodX.com and buy your tickets. We have an Instagram where we post clues and occasionally something rad or behind the scenes. So people of Instagram, what do you want from me over there? Because it's usually me. But you can banter with Susan at the History Chicks on Twitter with an X. The song in the middle is Beyond the Circle by Osamu Kitahama. And the end song is Get What You Want by Bait, B-E-I-G-H-T, both used by special permission from iLicense.